you know, sometimes in life we, we make presumptions about people, events, or even ideas that are not always accurate. And we have to be careful that we don't presume too much, right? I was thinking about the situation in Ferguson, Missouri, and there are a lot of presumptions going on concerning that case. There's two sides that have kind of drawn a, a line in the sand, those that are on the side of the police and those that are on the side of the young man that was killed. So you can make presumptions about what you think happened or could have happened. We have to be careful with that because we need to know all the facts, right? And until the facts come out, nobody really knows for sure. But people jump to conclusions. And in our story today, we have the same situation happening where this young man has been presumed dead. And so the Lord, in his mercy, in his grace, raised up this child who had fell three stories from a window. People assumed that he was dead. He was dead, but God had a different plan. And through the ministry and the prayers of Paul, he came back to life. This is the first instance in the book of Acts, after the church was birthed on Pentecost, that a person is raised from the dead. And it happened through the ministry of Paul. And Jesus said, you shall lay hands on the sick and you'll even raise the dead. And so here we see this miracle occurring. Getting back, though, to the the occurrence in, in Ferguson, Missouri, it, it has some resemblance to me of what happened in the 60s. Some of you weren't around then, but during the 60s, there was a lot of racial unrest in our country. And there was some rioting, a lot of rioting going on throughout the country. And this was the same era where we, we had the hippie movement and the anti-war protests and, and all of those things happening. And then in the midst of all that, God began to move. Amen. And the Jesus movement began right in the middle of all that. God began to save young people by the thousands. I happened to be one of those people on a balmy night in Palm Springs, California, age 14. I came into the kingdom in 1972. But really, the Jesus movement probably began in around the mid-60s, right in the midst of all this unrest. So we'll see. There may be some similarities to what happened in the 60s to what's happening right now in our country. But we should pray for justice and truth to prevail in this situation. Amen? That's the most important thing. All right, well, today I want to do a little map work, so if I can get Christy to turn on our map. We're going to take a look at Paul's second missionary journey, and Christy got me this nifty little pin. It's pretty amazing. Bingo. Isn't that nice? I remember we used to live in this old house in Long Beach, and one, one night we noticed this little thing, this on our kind of goofing around all over our couches. And it kind of freaked me out because I didn't know that these things existed. And I couldn't figure out. And then it would like disappear. And then it would come on again. It would disappear. And it was, we, I was like, what is that? And we thought it was something reflecting off something, but it was at nighttime. So it would be very difficult to have it reflecting off something. So we just couldn't figure it out. And then finally, I think we caught the kids in the backyard over on the other side of the fence doing it. And we figured out what it was. It was one of these pins I thought they actually banned these things. I don't know, but, well, it's back now. All right, praise God. Well, now we're going to look at Paul's second missionary journey, which in, in Acts chapter 20, which we're, we've come to today, is where it, it finishes. And so we know he started down, if you can, I don't know if you can raise that, but maybe not. But down here is Jerusalem. So Paul he leaves Jerusalem. He comes back up to Antioch, and Antioch is the hub of the Gentile church. That's where they were first called Christians, Acts chapter 11. Then we see him traveling to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, ministering through the region of almost, I guess you would call that modern-day Turkey, and then coming across here to Troas, and then he sails from Troas across to the first time the gospel went 
to Europe, and he arrives at Amphipolis, and then he moves on to Philippi, Apollonia, and then to Berea, Thessalonica. And remember the Bible says that the, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. We're to study the scripture and to compare scripture with scripture and to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So then from Thessalonica, he comes down to Athens, and in Athens he was grieved by the Holy Spirit at the idolatry that existed in the city. By the way, every one of these places moving along here, Paul encounters tribulations, trials, and persecution. And when the Lord met, when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, and he was blinded, and the Lord spoke to him and appeared to him, he showed him, he told Paul that I'm going to show you how many things you'll have to suffer for my name's sake. So Paul's ministry was a glorious ministry of the miraculous, supernatural power, and thousands of people coming to Christ, but also it was accompanied with persecution. Those, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, the Bible says. So we ought not to be surprised sometimes when we suffer in this life, because certainly Paul suffered, Jesus suffered. Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. From Athens, he went to Corinth and then across back to Ephesus. And we're back in Asia Minor again. And in Ephesus, we read last week our study that this is where a great uproar took place over the preaching of the gospel. And Paul had to leave again. Many times, if he wasn't imprisoned or jailed, he, he had to flee because the Jews got stirred up against him and they didn't want to hear about this new way called the way, the, the, the Jesus message, and they were persecuting him. We're going to pick it up here in Ephesus, and that's his second missionary journey. And then he'll have one more journey that we'll talk about later. All right, let's have the lights. Praise God. So we're in Acts chapter 20. As I mentioned, that, that in Ephesus there was this great uproar. There was a great division that happened in the city. The, the gospel divides people. It's just the way it is. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You really can't ride the fence concerning Jesus Christ. And so whenever Paul preached the gospel, there were people that aligned with him and then people that aligned against him. Same in the ministry of Jesus. This This is how it works. We are in the kingdom of darkness here on this planet. Satan is the god of this world. And he is opposed to the preaching of the gospel. And so there's a spiritual warfare that takes place. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Amen? So now, verse 20, they come to Troas, and this is where our story concerning the young man who died takes place. And they were gathering on the first day of the week. The first day of the week would be what day? Help me out. Sunday, okay? The last day of the week is Saturday. And for the Jews, that's the time where they worship. They worship on Saturday. But in the New Testament, it shifted, even though they were still Jews, but they were completed Jews. They were Christian Jews, they began to worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And here we are worshiping on the first day of the week. Amen? And typically that's when they would actually take up offerings too, would be on the first day of the week. So Paul comes and they are going to gather together for their agape feast. And remember I said that when they celebrated communion, it wasn't kind of like we do it, I think. It was more like a meal. They would, they would break bread, yes, and they would partake of, of wine or grape juice or something. But they did it around a common meal. So it, they became known as love feasts, agape love feasts. So we've kind of incorporated that in our church too, so that when we have communion, we want it to be centered around a meal. Because a meal brings people together, amen? So they were gathering for communion and this meal, and Paul began to carry on a discussion. Now, he wasn't preaching here. 
He, it was more like he was taking question, doing questions and answers. And so apparently there was a lot to be asked of Paul. I mean, if anybody knew the gospel, Paul knew it because he had received it by divine revelation. And he, he wrote much of the New Testament through divine revelation. Things were revealed to Paul that had never been revealed to anyone else. And we even said that Peter was lacking in some capacities as compared to Paul. Paul was more enlightened than Peter was. This happens in the church today. Some people have more of an enlightenment, a better understanding of the things of God, and then other people are less enlightened. But again, my, my philosophy always is, let's agree to disagree. Amen? We may not agree on everything, but we can agree to disagree. So Paul's taking these questions, and he's having this dialogue with the people. And we have this young boy, Eutychus, and he's sitting on the windowsill, in the upper room, and it's interesting, the upper room reminds me of the other upper room on the day of Pentecost, where the 120 gathered on the day of Pentecost, and when the day had fully come, the Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind. Praise God. So, once again, the disciples are in the upper room, and they're, they're, they have these lamps glowing, so it's nighttime now, and they probably were oil-burning lamps, so it could create kind of a, a little bit of a drowsiness. <laughs> and the little that he's not actually most Bible commentators think he was somewhere between seven and fourteen. I kind of think he was a young teenager, so I put him somewhere around fourteen years old or or so. And Paul was preaching long into the night. You know, I said you know there's one only one thing worse than a preacher without a watch, and that's one with a watch. Now, if you don't understand that, I'll explain it later. But Paul was long-winded. The kid fell asleep, got in his deep, dreamy sleep, not because Paul's preaching was so terrible or teaching, but it was just a natural occurrence. He was tired, and he fell out of the window, you know, and sometimes we say in life, why do bad things happen? I don't understand. You know, it shouldn't everything be good? Shouldn't everything happen good in life? And it simply is not so. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation, you'll have trial, you'll have trouble. Things aren't always going to work out perfect, but as Kelly was saying up during worship, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So God uses even bad things to become good things in our lives. Amen? He redeems the moment. And we need a constant redemption in our life because we're not perfect. We are flawed vessels, right? And we do make mistakes. And we don't always get it right. And we don't always please the Lord. But thank the Lord for his grace and forgiveness, amen, in our lives. And he redeems the moment, and I love that. No matter what situation you find yourself in, God can bring redemption. He can bring change. Amen? And that's the good thing to hold on to. That's the hope we have. And the hope we have in Christ is a hope that is covered in victory. Hallelujah. God always causes us to triumph in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Well, the young man falls. Paul immediately leaves where he's preaching and goes down to the young man. By the way, this child, this, this teenager, Eutychus, he probably had one of the most advantageous seats in the house because, because of the the lamps burning and, and the heat from the lamps, sitting by the window would probably be the best place to be. And so he probably was in the, one of the most advantageous spots, but yet here, tragically, he falls out. Now, it's interesting, Paul goes down and immediately lays down upon his body. Now, you might think that's kind of strange. And I believe that he, he got instruction of the Holy Spirit to do exactly what he did. And people would go, what is he doing? Why is he laying down on top of this kid? And Luke was probably there, and Luke was a physician, and so probably they'd already checked for a pulse, for breathing, 
And the child was, remember my title, he was presumed dead. Presumed dead, right? But the story hadn't, wasn't finished. Now, let's hold our place and let's go to 1 Kings 17 because we see this happening in the Old Testament through the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Now, you could say maybe Paul got it from them. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I think it was the Holy Spirit that instructed him what to do. So we want to look at 1 Kings chapter 17. Let's start with verse 17. 1 Kings 17, 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. Here there had been a, a miracle where this woman had become pregnant. And prior to that she was, she was barren. And through the prophet's ministry and through his anointing and the working of God, she conceived and had this child. So her dream came true, right? And the thing she so desired happened through the ministry of Elijah. And then the son got sick and died. Talk about death of a vision. I mean, here you think this is what I've been waiting for my whole life, and then you get it, and then you lose it. And it, there would have been a great tendency for her to blame God, blame Elijah, right? I don't get it. What, what's going on here, you know? But it's, the story's not over. So we read... So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? It's interesting. The, the, the prophets in the Old Testament were called men of God or a man of God. It's, it's a term not so much about the gender, but it, it's in reference to the fact that the miraculous was occurring through these people. So if you were called a man of God or a woman of God, then po the power of God was functioning in the, in the working of the miraculous in your life. And that's that, that term, man of God. Moses had that term, and also servant of the Lord. David had that term. Many of the great men in the Bible and women took on that term, working in the power of God. What do I have to do with you? Have you come to me to bring my son to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms. He carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and he laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? Even Elijah was questioning God. And he stretched himself out on the child three times. That's interesting. And he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he was revived. Whew, amazing. Three times, though. It took three times to do that. And we've talked about this transference. We talked about it last week. The transference of the Holy Spirit and how aprons and handkerchiefs were, were brought to Paul's body and they were laid on his body. I don't know where, but somewhere on his body. And then they took these garments and they laid them on the sick and the demonized and they were healed. Amen. Praise God. You say, well, that's just kind of symbolic. I don't believe that at all. I believe the anointing of God, the power of God flowed into these garments. Okay. And then the garments carried this anointing, and then those garments were laid on the sick, and it healed them. And there was a transference of power. Remember when Jesus said, who touched me? But if I but touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole, she said. She said, she said, if I touch, I'll be made whole. Jesus said, who touched me? Disciples said, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody's touching. He said, I felt, what, power flow out of my body. There's that transference. When Elijah went down on this child, laid down on him, the power of God, I believe, was transferred from his body to the child, and it revived him and brought him back to life. Praise God. Now that is an incredible miracle. 
Well, not to be outdone, Elisha does the same thing. So let's go over and look at 2 Kings 4. Not that they were in competition. But remember, he asked for a double portion of this anointing, and he got it, and he did twice the miracles that Elijah did. But it's funny. If you look in Scripture, you know who's known as the greatest prophet or one of the greatest? It's not Elisha, it's Elijah. So his name was greater. But yet Elisha did twice the miracles, which is kind of interesting because some people think that whoever does the most miracles or the most feats of power in the church are to be the most recognized. And that isn't always so. I've seen people that have ministry of healing and gifts of the Holy Spirit for healing and and do great miracles, but their ranking in the kingdom is not as high as someone else who maybe is not doing to the same degree, but yet they have a higher place in the church in their ranking in God. They're, they're, they're generals in the, in the kingdom of God. And they, they do run in the miraculous and do miraculous things, but you can't always go by how much is done. You know, that's not, God doesn't look at it like that, right? Remember the angels talking in C.S. Lewis's book, and they said, we're not into numbers. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I like that when somebody tells me that when they come to our church. Oh, well, I'm not really into numbers. I say, okay, thank you, good. Because <laughs> there are not a whole lot of numbers here right now. But the angels are simply not. And we think where there's a crowd, where there's a lot of people, it must be God, it must be, the, the, the God must be favoring that more than somewhere else. And that is not so. Because when it all came, was it all said and done, Jesus was the last man standing. Everybody else was gone. So it is, it's not about numbers. Now, God increases numbers, no doubt about it. And he increases the church numerically. But we don't judge something just by numbers. Because remember we said that you could walk by a great work of God and go right by it and think, eh, nobody's there, forget it. And the God's power could be manifesting in an incredible way and you walk right by it. I told you a lot of people, if Jesus walked down the street today in downtown Laguna Niguel, wherever that is, <laughs> a lot of people would walk right by Jesus and not even know it was him. They'd go right by him. Because we look for the superstars, right? The people with charisma, that are magnanimous and, and huge figures. And Jesus simply, his persona was not like that. For I am meek and lowly of heart. <laughs> Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We'd walk right by him. Probably would. You know, that's the way the kingdom of God operates. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all, right? And Jesus was the greatest servant that ever existed. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Praise the Lord. Let's look at Elisha now. God, you can get those two names mixed up. 2 Kings 4, let's go with verse 29. Then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet someone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now, Gehazi went on ahead of them, and he laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him, and he said, told him, saying, the child has not awakened. Here's another interesting story. Take the staff and lay it on him. Nothing happened. You'd be inclined to think, what went wrong? Didn't work. What happened? I don't know. When Elisha came to the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. Now, I assume that Elijah was told by the Holy Spirit, by God, to do what he did. And the child did not arise. And he went in, therefore, he shut the door, verse 33, behind the two of them. Now he's going in by himself. You know, there are people that have spirits of unbelief and doubt, and it can hinder the miraculous. 
right? So when God is moving in the miraculous, if there are people doubting and are in a state of disbelief, it can harm the work of God. That's why many times Jesus himself, when he rose a child from the dead, closed the door and only brought in two of the disciples, I believe. Unbelief can harm and hurt the working of God and the, and the working of the miraculous. Jesus, when he came to Nazareth, his own city, he could not do many mighty miracles because of what? Their unbelief. Now that's amazing. Jesus was limited by the miraculous and the working of the power of God because they were in a spirit of unbelief and doubt. So it, the, the climate and the atmosphere when God moves is important. You know, as, as we were reading Catherine Coleman's book in and she would always say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Please don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because the thing about the Spirit of God is he can be grieved. And if he's grieved, he will not operate. He backs off. And we do, you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit because you want to let him do exactly what he wants to do. Because he comes with blessing, right, and power. And, and she would do that over and over again, don't grieve the Spirit of God. And even if people were disrespectful, she would address them <laughs> and tell them to stop it. Because she knew that would have an effect on the working of God's power, you know. There are conditions that have to be met. Even Elijah would say, get me a minstrel. And before he would prophesy, he needed some kind of music, some kind of worship going. And that's another interesting thing. Sometimes the gift of prophecy operates better when there's worship that has taken place or is taking place. And then the person can get into that flow of the Holy Spirit and begin to speak forth the Word of God. So we need to be so sensitive to the Spirit of God. He operates besides us, beside us, near us, and upon us and in us. Amen. <laughs> Let's go back to our story. He closes the door and he prays to the Lord. And he went up and he laid on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. He stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. Whoa. Woo. That's incredible. But why mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands? I still believe, again, it was that transference of power that was moving from his body into the child and that revived that, that child. And the Bible says it became warm. In other words, his life came back into him. Amazing. The transference of power, the working of the Holy Spirit. Don't forget it was the bones of Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, that brought back a dead man, an officer in the army, the Jews were at battle, and they, a guy was killed, one of the officers, and they threw him into Elisha's sepulcher grave, and his body hit the bones, who Elisha was long, had already died, and it revived the man back to, to life. Pretty amazing. So his body had to hit those bones. If it, if it missed a little bit, he'd still be dead today. But it had to hit the bones. There's, there's, there's the anointing is in our bodies. It's in our hearts, it's in our spirit, it's in our minds, but it's also in our bodies, literally in our bodies. That's why Michael disputed over the body of Moses. That was important. They were fighting over his body. Interesting. I can't elaborate too much on that because I really don't know exactly what that was all about. But they were obviously warring over that. Okay, and by the way, the Bible says God buried Moses. And where he did, we don't know for sure. Somewhere on Mount Nebo. All right, let's go back to Acts, please. Chapter 20. Hallelujah. Praise God. Paul raises someone from the dead. Wow. But you know what's interesting? The Bible doesn't say, and he jumped up and twirled around and CNN came pouring in with their cameras, get the light on, get it on him. He's done it. This man has raised somebody from the dead. What did he do? 
just went back up and had, had dinner. That's what it said. Go back there, look at this. Don't trouble yourself, verse 10, for his life is in him. Now, now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and taken a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. So they still hadn't had their midnight snack. So they went up and had dinner together, the common meal, the agape feast. And he kept preaching and teaching and answering questions till daybreak. That means he was up all night. Everybody else was too. But Paul said there were many days where he had sleepless nights because of the gospel. And because he felt it was necessary to, to teach these people, to instruct these people, he gave up his sleep, stayed up all night. And then he was gone the next day. So pretty amazing. Now let's look at verse 18 in Acts 20. Well, let's look at 17. Then Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So now Paul has come back to Ephesus. That was where there was this great riot that took place and he was forced to leave. Then he went to Troas and performed this miracle of raising this child from the dead. Now he's come back to Ephesus and for one reason, he's come to talk to the leaders of the church, the pastors and and the elders, those that were in charge of the church. And that's what's interesting. God puts men and women in charge of his church. And that's pretty gracious of the Lord, right? Because men and women mess up <laughs> and do dumb things sometimes. But he entrusts, us, entrusts pastors to be in charge of the local churches. And he, he anoints them for that purpose. That means that pastors aren't perfect. And I'll put myself right in there. You know, We make mistakes and we're human and we don't always do it right. But God still uses imperfections to create his work. Amen? The key is, and you'll see it here with Paul, is to remain humble before the Lord. And people get puffed up, you know. If you get a big church or a lot of numbers or a lot of notoriety and fame and whatever, it can cause someone to be lifted up, proud, you know, thinking somehow it's them that's doing it, right? We ought not to do that. So he's now just talking to the elders here in verse 18. And when they, they had come to him... He said to them, you know from the first day when I came to you in Asia, in what manner always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, here it is, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. That word of humility is lowliness. And by the way, for those people to think that that a true ministry of God doesn't go through difficulty, well, certainly Paul's did. (laughs) He had a lot of tears. He said he had a lot of fears. I came to you in fear and trembling. So Paul was human just like we are, and God uses humanity. But a humble person can go a lot farther in the things of God than a proud person, right? God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Paul was humble, and he was vulnerable. And he did suffer greatly in his ministry. And some people would point the finger at Paul and say, you lacked, Paul, or you you failed, or you're doing something wrong, Paul. This shouldn't be happening. Why are these people so angry at you? What's the problem, you know? Spiritual warfare. The devil only goes after that which he knows has potential and has power. He doesn't really mess with things that that doesn't matter even how many people are there. He's looking for the power of God. Because when that manifests itself, that's where true dynamic change will happen, will take place in the lives of people. And that's what the devil hates. And he'll stop it at every... And wherever Paul went, because he was so charged with the power of God, the devil were following him and using people to attack him. So Paul did have tears, and it wasn't always easy, and many trials came to him. Verse 20, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. So Paul went around teaching from house to house. 
I like this verse 21. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. The word repentance in the Greek is metanoia. Metanoia. And it refers to change of mind, change of heart, change of purpose. It really just means to change your mind. So Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. You know, sometimes we get a weird understanding of repentance. And really, it's just making a decision, I'm going to change my mind. Yep, that's not right. I'm going to do this. It's just a change of mind. And then it's accompanied with faith in Jesus. Amen. So we repent, we change our mind, and we, we go in the way of faith. Amen. Faith pleases God. Then verse 23 except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So that when the Holy Spirit would speak to Paul on his way to the next place, whether he was in a boat or walking or on a horse or something, the Holy Spirit would say, okay, you're going to go preach, and there's going to be chains, imprisonment, and there's going to be tribulation there that's going to await you and suffering. So the Holy Spirit was telling him ahead of time what was going to happen. You know? And he said, I don't care. That was his attitude said, I'm going to do it anyway. None of these things move me. I thought that was kind of interesting. At least God prepared him, though. Because if you went in and didn't, weren't prepared and then all this started happening, you could, number one, begin to doubt God. And number two, it could be too overwhelming. But at least if he, he was knew this was going to happen, then he'd have a peace. Okay, God, you showed me this. This was going to happen. And by the way, God is glorified in our sufferings for righteousness. He gets glory in it. And we want to glorify God. All right, very quickly. Verse 24, and this is very important. But none of these things move me, nor do I commit my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I love that. To testify of the gospel of the grace of God. True ministry is to declare or testify the gospel of grace to others. So when we're talking about ministry, the kind of ministry that pleases God, we are telling others about God's grace. And God's grace is his unmerited favor or blessing upon people. So that's how the ministry works. It's inviting people to enter in to this gospel of grace, this good news of blessing. That's all it is. It's good news. I don't know why people get all weirded out with Christians because we're offering the greatest message you could ever think of. Eternal life and the blessing and favor of God upon you forever. Wow. That's the message. We're not to go out and browbeat people with our Bibles and condemn them for their sin. We're to invite them into the gospel of grace so that they might be forgiven of their sins, right? But some people got it all messed up. And they preached guilt upon people and preached condemnation upon people, thinking somehow that's going to help them. It's not going to help them. It's not going to help them. Gospel of grace. Gospel of blessing. God's saying, I'll remember your sins no more. I'll favor you for your entire life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's what David said. Goodness and mercy. And that's what you should say. Goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. Everywhere I go, goodness and mercy is with me. Because I am a child of God. I am part of the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Verse 27 for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's so important because we have to teach the full counsel of God. Some people teach a part of the scripture 
And that's where they get into false doctrine and false teaching because you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. The whole Bible must be taught. The whole counsel of God must be addressed. Otherwise, you get into imbalance. And that's where people get into problems because they don't teach the whole counsel of God. And there's always a balance. God balances things out. And whenever you get into an extreme, you're, you're going to be an error. I can guarantee it. It's good to be zealous for God. It's not good to be a zealot for God. There's a big difference between the two. We're not zealots, but we're zealous for the things of God, which brings us into proper balance. And that's how the kingdom works. We're going to close with this. 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, the Holy Spirit make, makes us overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. To shepherd the church of God. And then Paul said, when I leave... Verse 29, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. And you know what? You know what? When I think of savage wolves, Kelly, you know what I think of? Coyotes. No real purpose in life. Just to kill, right? And to prey on the innocent. And that's how the devil works. He preys on the innocent or he preys on the vulnerable. And where does he work most potently? In the church. Not outside the church. In the church. He's a pew sitter on the front row. And his biggest desire is to divide the church, right? To break up the unity of the church. And he will use people to take away the message from the pastor so that others would follow them away from the pastor, who is the shepherd of the flock. People in church should encourage people to submit to their pastor and to his teaching. If he's in error, then he should be corrected. But we are to submit to the pastor and his leadership. There are people that come in, the devil uses them to take other people out. We've seen that. That's their mission. They may not know they're doing that, but they're going to pull people out. They're going to convince people, well, that guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or that isn't right, or I don't think that's fair. And what happens? Pulls people out. And you know what I've noticed? When, he, when people get pulled out, they get out from underneath the umbrella of God's protection, and not good things happen. Is that, that's not very good grammar, is it? But bad things happen. They should have stayed under the umbrella. The Holy Spirit never said go anywhere, but they, because they listened to these people, they thought, well, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Like they know more. That's what these wolves do. Take people away from the teaching of the pastors. Paul said it's going to happen, so be ready for it and, and be prepared uh, to deal with that. Well, Paul leaves, this is the end of our chapter, and they cry over him because this man was such a wonderful man of God, such a committed a disciple of Jesus Christ, that it, it, we just knocked him over that he had to leave. And they didn't want him to. They was like, Paul, don't leave, you know. But he had to leave. Why? Because he had more ministry to take care of. 